thank God for His Word. The only way you will ever spiritually grow is by the Word of God. Excitement will bless you, and I like excitement, but it won't change you. The Word changes you by the renewing of the mind. So we're going to look at the Word again tonight, and we're going to finish chapter 3, and I think we'll only be uh, maybe probably two weeks in chapter 4, and we're done. But Colossians has been rich and great, and let's pray together and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you for the Word of the living God. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Lord, you said, abide in me and let my word abide in you. And so tonight, Lord, that's what we're doing. We're putting the word deep in our hearts and letting it abide. Speak to us tonight. Open the bread of life to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. You better perk up and listen. All right. All right, let's look at Colossians. The new man's clothes. Well, what is that about? Let's look at, let's just back, uh, back up a little bit and see what we talked about last time. We looked at the ruin of the old man of sin. What's the old man of sin? It's the old Adamic nature that we all inherited from Adam. The only man since Adam that never inherited that nature was who? I had two people tell me. Come on, come on, sir. Jesus. How did he avoid inheriting that nature because he wasn't born of an earthly father. The Holy Ghost conceived Christ in the womb of Mary. So he wasn't born with that sin, that Adamic nature. Now, we looked at how the old man of sin was crucified by God. We have been crucified with Christ. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, you were. Your old man was there, that old sinful nature crucified on the cross with his evil habits. Now we also saw how Paul used the analogy of getting dressed in that we are to put off, take off the old rags, that old way of life that was part and parcel of the old man, and we're to put on the new man. It's that simple. It's a matter of getting dressed. Now I'm just going to show you real quickly a, a, an illustration that I brought, and this is a dirty coat. And I can't believe I'm putting this on in the middle of 110 out there, but I am. Now here it is. Boy, you really made this dirty. This is good. This is a picture of the old man. You walked around and you lived in sin. You did wrong things, not because you were taught to, because you did it naturally. We all lived in sin. And that's why Christ had to come. And the Bible says that that it was the old man, the old man of sin that we were all carrying around. Now when Jesus, and, and every bit of him was dirty, we were dead in sins, dead in our sins. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, born with that old man. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, the old man of sin was crucified on the cross with him. Now the Bible says you need to leave him on the cross because you didn't crucify him because you can't crucify yourself. It can't be done. Somebody's got to crucify you. So who crucified our old man? God did. Where did he put the old man? On the cross. Where is he to stay? On the cross. Are we to live 
allowing the old man to order our life any longer? No. We are to live in newness of life. So if any man be in Christ, he is a brand new creation. Behold, the old is passed away and all is become. I heard two news. Come on. And now what, what happened? Somebody buttoned it. All right, there we go. Now watch this. Now when we got saved, he put on a new man. We got a new, nice man created in righteousness and holiness. That's what happened. Now, that's what God says was done for you and me. But what does God want us to do with that now? That's positional truth. Remember that last week? Positional truth means God tells you and I what he did for us on the cross. Positional truth is the way God sees you and me. For instance, God says, you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's positional. The Bible says you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now, though you are on earth. God sees you already seated in heavenly places in Christ. That's positional truth. That's our position in Christ. You are crucified with Christ. That's positional. But when God gives you and I a positional truth, he expects us to grab hold of it by faith and make it, make it practical truth. So when he says, you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and since you are raised with Christ, that's positional truth, then seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. That's the practical. He tells you a positional truth, and then he tells you how to respond to it in a practical way. So he says, since you are crucified with Christ, positional, you should no longer live in sin, practical. So Paul starts using these words, put on, put off, put on, put off, put on, put off. You can't read Paul's writings, which were the Holy Spirit's writings, using Paul. So this is Holy Spirit truth without running across these put on, put off, put on. Where are we to put on? Put on Jesus, it says. Put on holiness. Put on love. Put on purity. And that verbiage is just like getting dressed. It says, don't put on that old man. Here you are. You're driving down the highway. Somebody pulls in front of you. And then they not only pull in front of you, but they go 30 miles an hour once they're in front of you. And there you are. And, and aren't you tempted to reach up to that cross and pull that old man down and put him on and tell them things that you wouldn't want us to hear in church? And here's what we do. We, we put on that, we, we grab that old man and we put him back on and we walk in the flesh and then when we're done, we say, Jesus, forgive me, and we take it right back off. And when we walk into church, Oh, we're always dressed in our Sunday best. Hallelujah, bless you, brother, bless you, sister. But see, the deal is, is by faith, we are to take positional truth, grab hold of it, and make it practical in daily living. So that when you walk out every single morning, Monday through Saturday, 
You put on Jesus by faith. And all that that means, his love, his mercy, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. You put those things on by faith. You walk in them by faith. You dress yourself in Jesus. So say with me, get dressed. First thing we do in the morning is we get dressed. But guess what? You ought to get dressed in a spiritual way as well. He says, put off, take off the old rags, that old way of life, that old way of living, the anger, the lust, the fear, the doubt, the habits, and literally lay them down and leave them on the cross. They were crucified. So, Pastor, my old man doesn't feel crucified. I know. But here's what it says. Reckon it to be so. Now, Texans can do that easy. Can you say with me, I reckon? But that means something very different in New Testament theology. See, we say, I reckon in Texas, but when you say theologically, I reckon, it means I am considering something true and done. We are to reckon the old man crucified on the cross to stay. And we are to reckon that we have a new man created in righteousness and we are to get dressed spiritually every day. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Now, let's look at this. In the same way we are to put off the rags from our former life, we are to put on the new man, the new clothes of our resurrected life. Now look at verse 10 of chapter 3 and read this with me. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So what have we done? We are learning to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. How does that new man get renewed? Knowledge. Where do we get knowledge? The Word. Now God did not choose to patch up the old nature. He replaces it with a new one. God doesn't rehabilitate the old nature. He doesn't doesn't patch it up. Uh, He doesn't do any of that. He gives you a brand new one. The old man is replaced by the new man. The carnal nature is replaced by the divine nature. Ultimately, even our old body, hallelujah, will be replaced by a new body. Those of you that are sweating at curves need to say amen. That old body, though the outward man perished, the Bible says, the inward man is being renewed day by day. That outer man is getting older, it's getting decrepit, it's aging, it's getting wrinkled. It is, it's, 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 it's... I hate to tell you ladies, but there reaches a time where makeup isn't going to help you. And us guys, listen, you're going to look in the mirror and go, oh my Lord, when did that happen? Guess what? We're going to get a new body one day. A glorified body one day. So, as we have received a new nature, he promises that it's all going to come to a climax with a brand new body. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Now, the parable that Jesus used of the impossibility of placing new wine into old wineskins deals with the truth that I'm talking to you about. He said, new wine poured into old wineskins will burst the wineskin and the new wine will be lost. 
there must be a new wineskin, now that means a new nature, to contain the new wine, which is the Holy Spirit. God can't put the Holy Spirit in that old, decrepit nature. He's got to give you a new nature. So we get a new nature, a new wineskin, and, and that's when you're saved. And when you get the new wineskin, he pours the new wine, the Holy Spirit, into the new wineskin. You must be born again. Now this new man is created in righteousness and holiness. When Paul says, and you have put it on, and you have put on the new man, it means you did clothe yourself. You are clothing yourself, just like these coats. You are by faith putting him on. Then there is a change. Paul says, which is renewed? What's renewed? The new nature. Or which is ongoingly being renewed is the actual language or which is being ever renewed or ever maintained. So we get a new nature, and then that new nature is constantly undergoing renewing by the touch and by the Word of God. So at the time of our conversion, we receive a new man. That's a fact. If you've come to Christ, you've got a new man, a new nature. Nothing could give that to you but God through Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to get a new man than to come to Jesus and say, I for, forgive me, I've sinned, come into my heart, be my Savior and Lord, I repent and I acknowledge you. Then the Spirit of God does a miracle. He reaches down. He goes into your soul, into your inner man. And whereas your spirit man was dead in sin, it is resurrected by the touch of the power of God, and you receive a brand new man. That's not rehab. That's conversion. So that's a finished fact. But that new man is always in the process of God's renewing. He's ever bringing us into a fresh knowledge of himself. And this is why Paul wrote elsewhere, one of my favorite verses here, for we are ongoingly his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with in them now notice every single day you're God's project you're on you're on the potter's wheel every single day and what's he doing he is, you're his workmanship he created you in Christ Jesus for good works, but he's ongoingly renewing you every single day. That's why I tell you, you've got to go to the renewal book, the Bible. You've got to go to the Word of God so that God can renew your mind and continue the renewing process. Thank God that I was saved 40 years ago, but guess what? Today I needed to be renewed again. So I got into the Word of God. Now here's another one. Again, one of my favorites. Read it with me, can you? Being confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you, what was that? The new birth, will complete it, the ongoing renewing, until the day of Jesus Christ. What he started, he's going to finish. Amen? I like that little saying, uh, I forget the acronym, but it basically means please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I'm not what I wish I were, but I'm sure not what I used to be. Amen? Why? 
I got saved. The renewing now every day is going on. He renews me. Now, verse 11, he says, Where there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And that simply means at the foot of the cross, everybody's the same. Nobody's better than anyone else. We are one in Jesus Christ. No matter what the skin color is, what the financial position is, what the education is, what the pedigree is, we're all one in Jesus Christ. Now, since we are new creations in Christ, we are to, read it with me, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, what does he say do? Put on. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. That's the good coat. He says, put those on. When you wake up in the morning, don't tell yourself, I've got a temper. My daddy had a temper. My granddaddy had a temper, so I'm stuck with it. No, no, no. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Just put them on. Well, I'm waiting for him to drop on me from heaven, Pastor Jeff. You're to put them on by faith like a coat. It's quiet in here. I know you're thinking. Now watch this. Remember, there are two kinds of truth in the kingdom of God. We already went over it, positional and practical. Positional truth is what God declares has been done for us in Christ, such as we are seated in heavenly places in Christ, done. We are dead to sin, alive to God done. We are delivered from the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Done. It's done. Now, practical truth involves taking what God has done for us and applying it by faith to everyday life. It's that simple. For instance, since you are raised with Christ, positional, seek those things which are above. Practical. Or since you're crucified with Christ, positional, you should no longer yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Practical. Isn't this simple? Paul is now turning from positional to truth to practical truth. He says, read it with me, put on, put on, put on. This is a command, not a suggestion. The believer has received holiness of character. He is the elect of God. This is a positional truth. So we are to put on mercy, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on long-suffering by faith. It's yours. These are the treasures in the treasure chest that God gave us through Jesus Christ. So put them on. Now we are to put them on like new clothes because they were given to us by God. By our own deliberate choice, we're to put on Christ-likeness of character. You know, it's amazing when you remember this and try it tomorrow. Because I guarantee you tomorrow you will have a chance to put on one of those things we just named. And if you'll just stop and think, uh-oh, I'm about to grab that old man off the cross and put on that old dirty coat, I'm not going to do it. I'm instead going to grab the new coat and put it on. So, Whereas normally I might have been mean or ornery or difficult or unmerciful, I remember what I heard last night, so I'm going to put on that coat. And you find that when you grab hold of it by faith, 
Suddenly you're able to move in it, and the more that you grab hold of it by faith and put it on, the more it becomes a part of you, because that is your inheritance in Christ, to put on Jesus and put off the old man. Now he comes to verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on. There it is again. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Do you see how often Paul uses that terminology? Put on, put off, put off, put on. Be a put on. Fake it till you make it. Now notice the command over and again. Put these things on. Get dressed in them. They are yours. We might ask ourselves throughout the week, am I wearing my new clothes to work? Am I going to work with Jesus on or am I going in a bad mood? Or am I wearing my new clothes to church? Or again, how about this one? Am I wearing my new clothes at home? Home's the real testing ground. Everybody knows who you are at home, right? And if you put on Jesus at home, you can put on Jesus anywhere. Come on. Don't look at me so holy, these halos over your head. You're you at home. And he says, at home, put on Jesus. Great testing ground. Just put on Jesus at home with your spouse, with your kids, with the pets. Put on Jesus. Now, no doubt about it, Paul was the best-dressed believer of all time. No doubt about it. You rarely see him in the old rags. Every once in a great while, like the time he got mad at Mark, mad at John Mark, and they parted ways, had an argument. You kind of see a little bit of the old, but for the most part, Paul always got dressed in Jesus. He always walked in Jesus. He put it on. He was always dressed to the max in Jesus Christ. We need to learn to do the same. Now, verse 15, he says, after you've learned to put on and put off and put off and put on, you're going to have to let some things be in your life. Read it with me, can you? And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the peace of God. Christians are to live in the peace of God. Now, I'm going to say that again. We're not to be troubled. We're not to be worried. We're not to be filled with fear. We're not to be filled with angst. We're not to be walking around chewing our nails to the quick. We are not to be uptight. God wants us. God gave us peace, supernatural peace. So supernatural, the Bible says it's beyond the ability to intellectually understand it. Paul talks about the peace of God in Philippians chapter 4. Let the peace of God, if you give God everything in prayer, His peace will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Act like an umpire over your heart and mind. If you have peace, God is saying, okay. If you lose your peace, God is saying, look out. God's peace is to be the arbiter of whether or not we are in the will of God. If you lose your peace over a decision, over circumstances, over a relationship, it's likely we've stepped out of God's will. If I lose my peace over something, man, I immediately begin to pray about it. Because if I lose my peace and I can't get it back and I'm troubled on the inside, 
I need to ask the Lord why. I need to settle it. You should never go into a relationship, never go into a business transaction, never go into a situation where God's peace lifts off of you because God guides his children by peace. This is the way, walk ye in it, peace. Or don't go there, peace lifted. Jesus himself was peace personified. He confronted demon spirits with peace reigning within. We don't ever see Jesus worried. He's never taken aback. He's never befuddled by circumstances. He's never knocked off his game. In a wild and stormy sea, they had to wake him up. And he stood up and told the ocean to stop it. I'm taking a nap. Leave me alone. And he walked in peace. He even had peace on the cross. He was in charge. Now he said to us, and I want you to read this with me because this is something we've been given by him. Read it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world give? They give and they take it back. The world gives and says, well, you know, I didn't really mean that. And they take it back. Jesus says, when I give it to you, it's for good. That's how I give to you. So, thank God for the peace that passes all understanding. And thank God for the peace reigning in our heart. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be troubled. And don't let your heart be afraid. Paul says the peace of Jesus Christ should literally rule our hearts as we practice being thankful. Let his peace rule. Let his peace. Don't allow a troubled heart to rule your life. Don't allow yourself to walk around in fear. Pray until it lifts and walk in peace. He has given us peace. Amen. Amen. Let the peace of Christ rule, he says, and then let the word of Christ, the peace and the word of Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Look at that. Let the peace of God rule and let the word of Christ dwell. Well, the word dwell means let God's word find a home in you. Memorize it, meditate on it, quote it, study it, and live by it. It'll set you free. Give the Word of God a home in your heart. Let the Word of God know, hey, you've got a home in me. Dwell there. That means you're going to have to get into it every day. I do. Virtually every day, I start my day with the Word of God. I open up that Bible. I open up a commentary that I read all the time. I, I go through verses. I go through passages. And I let the Word of God dwell in me, not just a little bit, but he said, richly abundantly. That's the only way you and I are ever going to be changed. Anybody in here want to be changed? You want to grow up into adulthood spiritually? It happens by letting the Word of God have a home in you. God's Word should fill our minds. It ought to control our lives. It ought to become our constant counselor, our companion, our guide. You ought to have a relationship with that Word. I'll tell you a little secret. 
There have been times, you're going to think this is weird, but there have been times I've opened up that Bible and put it right here and gone to sleep with it open on me. You know why? I want that word close to my heart. Pastor Jeff, that's kind of weird. Let me tell you, I know the power of that word. And that word will set you free. That word will deliver you. That word will heal you. He sent his word and healed them. Now, when this is so of us, we will naturally, it'll come out of us. When it's in us, it'll come out. We'll teach others. He says we'll rebuke error. We'll encourage the struggling. We'll win the loss. When you're full of the Word, the Word's going to get out of you. And what we need is a bunch of people walking around so full of the Word, they can't keep it in. That's what we need. We don't need to be just barely eking by, just enough to survive, but so full of the Word that we have a bad case of the can't help it. We've got to talk it. We've got to minister it. We've got to tell people. And being indwelt by the Word will also break out in spiritual songs and hymns. What does he say? Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You ought to learn just to sing to the Lord in your car when no one's around and they don't have to listen. Learn. Learn how to let the Holy Spirit just give you a song and sing to Jesus going down the highway. What else have you got to do? When you're stuck in rush hour, you can get mad or you can get glad. Just start singing. He says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Roll down the window. Traffic will pick up. Clearly, clearly Christianity is a happy faith. Christianity is a happy faith. It gives joy unspeakable and full of glory. We didn't get baptized in pickle juice. We got joy from the Holy Ghost of God. It's a happy faith. I really do believe that only a redeemed people can genuinely rejoice. Now, next, Paul brings more practical admonition in light of all the positional truth he's presented, and he's about to meddle. So let's look at it. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Everybody say whatever. Whatever you do in word or deed. Life is made of decisions. Amen? So Paul gives us a maxim, a rule of faith, a formula to live by. Everything we say and do must be linked to the name of the Lord Jesus. If you can't link Jesus to it, don't do it. Isn't that what he's saying? Now that'll change your life, won't it? If I can't link Jesus to it, I shouldn't do it. If I can't do it in the name of the Lord, then I shouldn't do it at all. We are to do and say everything under the controlling influence of the saving, sovereign, safeguarding name of the Lord Jesus. What a protection that is if you say, if I can't do it in the name of the Lord, I'm not going to do it. Wouldn't that save you a lot of mistakes? I wonder how this would change our life were we to literally and wholeheartedly practice this tomorrow. We are to practice this proportionately in word and deed, in deed and in word, proportionately, because that's all we have is words and actions. And we're to practice it properly in the name of Jesus. And we're to practice it prayerfully, giving thanks to God in all things. 
Now, Paul turns his attention to the home. How many of you know God cares about your home? All right, now he's dealing with all these positional truths. Now he's going to get real practical. Uh-oh, he's talking to wives first. Now, wives, I'm going to deal with you first because the Word does, but I want you to do this to the guy next to you because he's next. So just hang on. But it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As goes the home, trust me, so goes the nation. Why is our nation in trouble? Because our homes are in trouble. Big trouble. Paul's principles for the home are straight from the Holy Spirit who inspired his words. Marriage partners each have a role under God. Now, if you're single, listen closely anyway, because you're not going to stay that way more than likely, so just listen. First, the man is the head of the home. Anything with more than one head is a freak. I just had to write that down. I'm sorry. I... But watch this. You can't have two heads of a nation. You can't have two commanders in chief. And you can't have two heads of a family. The man is not the boss. That is not what it means by headship. That doesn't mean the man is a dictatorial boss. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the man's spiritual position in the home is to spiritually lead. Not be a dictator, not be a tyrant, not be a despot, but a leader. Leaders lead. Dictators dictate. There's a difference. If the man abdicates headship, he does so to the detriment of himself, his wife, and his children. Because the man is to spiritually lead the home. When I marry people, I always look at the man first and I say to him, as soon as you say I do and you walk out of this room, you have received a brand new calling in life. And that calling is to be the spiritual leader of your home. Not just the primary wage earner. That's not what he's talking about. Not the primary wage earner. That's something different. He's saying the man is the head, that is the spiritual head, the spiritual leader. He's to lead that home. It ought not be mom getting the kids up and carrying the kids to church. It ought to be dad waking everybody up and saying, let's go to church. Let's pray. Let's read the Word. And the reason so many women end up being the, the leaders of the home is because the men have abdicated. And listen, sir, man to man. If you abdicate your position and you don't spiritually lead your home, you are going to suffer for it. And your kids are going to suffer for it because you're teaching them. You're teaching them that men don't lead, that men don't take responsibility, that men don't care about spiritual things. And you're teaching them that it's the, it's the woman that's got to go lead, that's got to... to, to to take over that's got to become the boss. And you're putting that woman in a position God did not call her to in his ideal situation, which is the man leading the home. Not dictating, not being mean, but leading. Leading. Now, he's to spiritually lead the home. This does not mean the wife is a doormat. People say this to me. As a matter of fact, when I marry people, I, I read the word that says submit. That little six-letter word has gotten a very bad rap in our day by people who don't have a clue what it really means. Not a clue. 
They're bloviating about things they don't understand. Here's the deal. Submit means to rank under or to be loyal. And the woman who is submitting to a husband is submitting to the God who called the husband. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that Sarah learned. And Sarah is your spiritual mother and you are to learn from her this whole principle where Sarah trusted God in Abraham. And so here's what women do. They like well, he's not doing anything right. He leaves his socks all over the floor and he, he's messy and he, he's, not, he's not doing this and he's not doing that and he's not who I thought I was marrying. Now listen, there comes a point in all submission to a boss, to a husband, to a pastor to a church and all submission you're submitting to imperfect human beings so there has to be something beyond the person you submit to and that is the God who called the person and said now there's your leader amen pastor Jeff preach it now I, I am Now let me tell you the truth. The wise man will listen to his wife. It's, it's not saying the wife doesn't know anything, doesn't have input. No, 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 no. You are co-heirs with Christ. It's not saying the woman is less than, less value than, less important than any of those things. The wise man will listen to his wife, respect her views, consider her best interests when making decisions regarding the home. He'll be thinking of her. Now, let me tell you something. I learned a long time ago to listen to her because she sees things I don't see. She picks up on things I don't pick up on. She's far more instinctive with some things than I am. And so I've learned if she gives me a big warning about something, I better listen. Guys, let me tell you something. Listen. I'm not saying she's always right, and you're not always right, but I really believe that men are wise if they listen to their wives and listen to their input, listen to their advice, listen to their counsel, because again, we are co-heirs with Christ. So I'm not teaching when, I, when, when Paul talks about submission, he's not saying anything other than men lead your homes. And when the man is attempting to lead the home, the woman must learn to submit to an imperfect individual and ultimately trust the God who appointed the individual. And that's the way it is with all submission. Is it easy? No. You remember old Abraham lied about his wife. Lied. Said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Trying to protect his own backside. And so a king took her into his castle. And there's Abraham watching beautiful Sarah being taken away because he lied. Now, what do you think was going through her mind as she's being led into a foreign king's castle? That rascal, that sorry liar, he lied about me. I'm not his half-sister. I'm his woman. <laughs> and what did God do? It, it, Sarah, Sarah kept her mouth shut, and she, she trusted God. And, and God woke that king up and said, you lay a finger on her, and you're a dead man. And God stuck up for her. And then here comes a foreign pagan king the next day, 
And you got a foreign pagan king rebuking the man of God for lying. But what happened? God, God protected her. And Peter says, you got to learn, ladies, from Sarah, who trusted God even though the man was imperfect. Now watch this. God holds the man responsible to exercise his leadership, and the woman is responsible to submit to it, to, to be loyal to it, to, to honor it. Now, next, here comes the husband. Husband, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. Isn't that interesting? He tells the woman, submit to the man. He tells the man, love the woman, and don't be bitter. That's very interesting to me. The instructions of the wife are addressed to her will. The instructions of the husband are addressed to his heart. The word used for love is agape. It's Calvary love, which is not emotional love necessarily. It's love of choice, love by choice, love by covenant, love by commitment. And the husband is to guard against becoming bitter. And what the woman has a tendency to do is lose respect for the man and quit submitting to him. What the man has a tendency to do is get busy with his job and neglect her and his heart drifts. So God understands both natures and says to the woman, you're going to have a tendency to not respect him, so be sure you put on that part of Jesus, that respect, put it on, and man, sir, mister, you're going to have a tendency to drift in your heart. So I'm commanding you to love her. The woman, it was the will. The man, it was the heart. Because what the man tends to do is get irritated and become bitter. And when he becomes bitter, he begins to drift. Well, I don't feel the same. Things have changed. We've grown apart. If you grow apart, grow back together. Okay. Now watch. So he says, he says, your tendency, Mr. Mr. Married Man, is going to be to get bitter because of little irritants that are there in the marriage, and you're going you're to want to embrace your job more than your wife and more than your home, and you will have a tendency to drift if you don't watch it. So I'm telling you to put on love and do not get bitter. The same word is translated into wormwood. That's how strong this word bitter is. Wormwood in the book of Revelation, describing Satan's effect on fallen man. In other words, we are not to allow our marriage to become wormwood, bitter. Filled with bitterness due to the exasperating irritating traits we all have, be they big or little. Listen, there are people that live together, but they're not together. You know why? Because they've gotten bitter. They're not together. They're two people. They might as well rent the house together because they're not together. Kathy and I were out to uh, eat a while back, and there was this couple, I remember this, sitting across from us and at another table, and I don't know, I watched people, and I, and I just happened to notice that the whole time they were there. They didn't say one word to each other. Just sat there eating, looking around. I mean, Lord, if I'd been single and seen them, I would never want to get married if they were my picture. Because they were, they didn't talk, they didn't smile, they were just there. 
See, when bitterness gets in, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. When bitterness gets in and you start holding grudges against each other and you don't forgive each other and you don't pray together and you drift, that bitterness sets in. You don't have a marriage. You have a legal arrangement. That's it. So he says, Mr., don't allow bitterness to separate you in your marriage. Now, Paul moves next from mom and dad to the kids, and we're going to deal with this, and we're almost done. Everybody, can you smile? And I wish I had more time to deal with these things. This, this, we could spend months on just that, but we, we, we're going to get through this book. So let's look at verse 20 now. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, look at this. He deals first with dad, then mom, or first with mom, then dad, then the children. Now, when he says, obey your parents in all things, I feel the need to say what I'm about to say right here. This applies to reasonable parents, not those that are physically or sexually abusive. Obedience ends when sin is required in the relationship. And maybe a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have had to say that. But in America, now, we've got to say that. God would never, for instance, tell a child to submit to sexual abuse. He, but when he said submit in all things or obey in all things, he didn't mean that. He's talking about in how you dress, how you talk, how you live. Good parental counsel. He's not talking about... If your parent, and parents do this now, I read about one of these this week where a parent used their child to rob a convenience store. Well, see, that child should have said, no way. Obedience ends here. I don't obey you when sin is involved. Now, within the realm of reasonable parenting that's also under God's authority, the child is to submit. The home is the first and foremost, lear foremost uh, learning ground for how to respond to authority. If a child does not learn obedience to parental authority, here's the danger. He will grow up to disrespect all authority. School, police, and eventually divine authority. Look at these hooligans in the UK. Look at these kids in England who have been rioting, looting, pillaging, even killing and vandalizing all week long. Look at them, 12-year-old, 13-year-olds, 14, mask over their face, cursing at police. How'd that happen? If you learn authority in the home, you'll respect it everywhere you go. But if you don't learn it in the home, you respect it nowhere else. And here's what I've noticed. If a child doesn't learn authority in the home, God will force him to learn it at the school. If he doesn't learn it at the school, God will use the police. Sooner or later, every human being has got to come to terms with authority. Okay? Now, where should it happen? It should happen in the home. Learn it there. But if you don't, you're going to encounter it down the road. Some boss is going to tell you to do something, and it's going to rise up in you because you never learned it. And you're going to resent him and have an attitude, chip on your shoulder, walk through life mad at the world because you never learned authority at home. That's why it's so important that they do. 
because you're just going to watch heartache down the road as they learn it elsewhere because they didn't learn it with you. Now, Jesus, our prime example in all things, practiced this very principle. It says he returned to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and was what? Obedient to them, and he was 12 years old. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Now next, Paul deals with parental responsibility, and then we're going to be done. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The word for provoke means to rouse to anger or to fight. It can also mean to irritate. Children, believe it or not, have feelings. They are little people. They have feelings, thoughts, desires, hopes, faults, just like adults do. And they like to be treated with respect. The father's role is not to be a dictator, bossing and bullying his children. Nobody likes or deserves to be treated that way. And he says, don't discourage them. The word for discourage means to be disheartened or to have their spirit broken. There's a huge difference between breaking a child's will and breaking their spirit. The defiant will must be broken, but a broken spirit, asks Proverbs, who can bear a broken spirit occurs when the child gets so discouraged from so much criticism and so much discipline and so much meanness that they just give up and their spirit's broken. So Paul says, don't break their spirit. Break their will in love and teach them authority. Well, I'm going to leave it there. We've had enough tonight. You're saying, oh, look at that, employer, employee, come on, Pastor Jeff. We'll do it next time. Let's stand up. <clears throat> you see how practical the Word of God is? Isn't it practical? And how many of you are glad to know that tomorrow you can put on love, put on peace, put it on? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you right now. For your blessing here tonight thank you for the goodness of God in the house of God thank you Lord for the truth the revelation that you gave in your word for what you did for us in Christ that we are crucified with him and we are raised to walk by resurrection power in a new life where we put on new clothes spiritually we put on our inheritance in Jesus Christ Help us, Lord, to do it, to walk in this, to practice it, to exercise our faith in it. In the mighty name of Jesus. Now, I want to pray a blessing on our homes here tonight. If you can say, Pastor, I need the peace of God on my home. I want you to raise your hand. My home is under attack. We need the peace of God on our home. We need peace and we need wisdom. Raise your hands. I'm going to just pray many people. Listen, the truth will set you free. Lord, I pray for the peace of God to rest on every home, every parent-child relationship, every spousal relationship, that the men will learn to lead and not dictate. The women will learn to serve as co-heirs with Jesus Christ and trust you in submission in the home and help us all to trust you as we submit to various people in our life. Though imperfect, we trust you 
And Lord, we just thank you right now for it. Thank you for your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.